Section 5 of Ancient Ideals in Modern Life. Four Lectures. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Ancient Ideals in Modern Life. Four Lectures. By Annie Besant. Lecture 2. Temples, Priests, and Worship. Part 2. If a man has in him a heart that is strong enough, a faith that is heroic enough, to look through the unworthy guru to the great guru, whose power may come down even through that unworthy channel, if a man has courage, devotion, and insight enough to disregard the unworthy form and see in it merely a channel for the power that is divine, then the mantra given by even such a guru will purify and spiritualize the man who takes it, and he will not suffer, because the one who gave it was not worthy to be the giver. Do not, then, break the tie of love, the tie of duty, even when the representative is unworthy. Be patient for a little time. Bear with these unworthy ones, for the sake of the ideal they represent, for the sake of the glory of the past, and for the holiness of the name that is cast as a veil over the unworthiness of the present. Remember that blessing will come to you, even through these, if you are worthy to receive it. But for those who thus prostitute the holiest of names, who by ignorance and profligacy blaspheme the most sacred of relations, for them there lies in the future the lowest of narakas, the doom of those who have blasphemed the divine in man, and have outraged that which is the holiest and the most pregnant with the salvation of mankind. Do you dream, because you live in modern days, that these great things are but shadows of their former selves? Do you dream that they have lost their real force, that the great truths have lost their vital energy, that the holy mantras have now no power, that the sacred scriptures have now no magic and no strength? The change is not in them, but in those who use them, in whose hands they are as forms empty of all life, these things which once brought down the very powers of God before the senses of men. I who speak to you, I bear you witness that these scriptures, which are yours, but whose powers you know not, are still as mighty as ever they were in ancient days, that these mantras have still as much of the ancient power as ever, if only they are rightly uttered. For I know that where the sacred shlokas have been chanted by lips that were wise and pure, all that is said of the old days is true today, really as ever it was in the past. Even now, to hear such chanting, the divas throng from every quarter, making the air vibrant with the rustle of their celestial garments, filling the whole air with perfume, while the silver tinklings of the bells of the heavenly choristers chime in harmoniously with the sonorous chanting of the Sanskrit shlokas by the priest. That is still true. It is not the form that is wanting. It is the life that should animate the form. There is the difficulty. It is that which we have to seek. My brothers, is it possible for us to find out a remedy without breaking the old ideals and while keeping them still sacred? Is it possible to get rid of the abuses which are strangling them to death 
and to give back to India what she once possessed? I know well that it would be easy enough to sweep away all these abuses, for it would not take much to stir the Indian heart to anger, so that it would sweep them all away. But it would at the same time sweep away all the forms that need to be revivified, all the ideals, and not only the abuses. There is the difficulty that faces us. Better be patient and bear much, working slowly for change, than break all the vessels which contain the possibilities of Indian spirituality for the future. It is easy enough, by acts and laws, to change the outer things, to stop the outer scandals. Easy enough, by acts that might be passed by a Christian government, to say that a man once convicted of crime should not again be placed on the gadi. But are you sure that in that quick and hasty method of reform, you would not destroy the very thing that we must preserve if India's spirituality is to survive? It is not always the outwardly quickest way that is the best way to take, especially in matters spiritual, which count time but little, which regard the ideal as vital. Therefore, it is that in the lines that I suggest, I put on one side the rough and ready methods whereby politicians correct political abuses in matters where the conditions may be changed by enacting laws. The evil here lies deeper than any law can touch. The harm is rooted in regions in which no act can run. Slow must be the methods by which the deep change can be brought about. Can we not be patient in our workings, if we see the goal at which we aim? Two things are chiefly wanted in order that the abuses I have spoken of may be cleared away. One is the slow method of education. The other, a rise in the spirituality of the people, of the Hindus themselves. I know full well that these methods will not recommend themselves to those who are so angry with the evils that they see that they would strike quickly in order to get rid of them at once. I do not plead for the abuse when I ask you to be patient in bearing it. The words of a wise teacher of the ancient times should be remembered when he told his disciples not to pull up too hastily the weeds that had grown along with the wheat, lest they should also pull up the young corn, but rather wait until the corn was strong enough to bear the movement around its roots so that the weeds might be gathered and thrown into the fire, which was their proper place without injuring the corn. Education is the first thing wanted. When I speak of the ignorance of the priesthood, I refer to the priestly class spoken of above, and not, of course, to those learned pandits, profound in their scholarship, whose learning is a glory to their land, and who have kept alive Indian philosophy. I am not speaking of these great lights of modern India, but I speak of the temple priests, that is where education must begin in order to strike at the very root of mischief. You must remember that significant declaration of Manu when he said that, as an elephant made of wood, as an antelope made of leather, so is an ignorant Brahmana. These three have only the names. I have met many a Brahmana in southern India who was ignorant even of Sanskrit and who knew not the very meaning of the mantras that he repeated even in the mere outward meaning of their words, far less the spiritual meaning that underlies them. I have seen Brahmanas officiate at sacred ceremonies who could not even pronounce aright their Sanskrit words, 
and who used wrong words in the midst of the mantras, so taking away the little efficacy that they might have had, had they been rightly pronounced. Other words of Manu come to my mind, certainly not lacking in strength. As a eunuch is unproductive with women, and a cow with a cow is unprolific, even so useless is the Ramana who is not instructed in the Vedas. No words of mine are these, but words of that mighty teacher who stands at the head of Hinduism, nay, at the head of the present race. Shall we not, then, try to win the priests to submit to education? Shall we not try to make it easy, so that education shall be open to them on every side? Is it not for us to reform the priesthood? Not from below may the purifying fire ascend. It is for the priesthood to reform itself, and this it will do if educated. The fire must come from the heart of the priestly community to purify it. Otherwise the work will be ill done, and the results will be transitory and poor. But there is already a movement in southern India among the religious Hindu community, and they have appealed to us here to lend them a helping hand in gaining a learned priesthood. Some of the trustees of the temples have come and asked us whether it was not possible, in connection with this central Hindu college, to open a theological department where sons of priests might be trained and educated, and then go back to the temples and take up their father's work, worthy to be servants of the high gods. The working out of that plan is already in contemplation. There will be here made arrangements by which the sons of priests will be taken, supported by those who send them, in order that they may be trained in the elements of general morality and religion, and also in Western knowledge, for it is necessary that the priest should not be divided from the people by knowing nothing of that which they know, and therefore it is proposed, with the approval of those who have spoken to us, that the boys should be first trained in the ordinary curriculum, and should then pass into the theological department, and there be trained further in Sanskrit learning, as well as in the ceremonial knowledge pertaining to the duties of the priesthood. If that scheme be carried out, if the college here cooperate with our brothers in the South in this respect, surely that will be the beginning of brighter days. If we can send forth a learned priesthood, such a priesthood will be purer in life than if it is utterly ignorant, for with ignorance goes degradation. If that task can be accomplished here, then a great work will be done for India's future, when the priests thus trained will go back to the temples that they serve, and there lead lives respected by the community, honorable, upright, pious, examples to those who throng to the temples. So, in other parts of India, similar movements might be begun. There is possibility of reform here. Let us then plead with the priests to educate themselves. Let us make it easy for them to do it. There are plenty of funds contributed by pious people. Why should not these be used for the benefit of the priesthood, so that the temples may be served by learned and pious brahmanas? This is dealing with the very root of the evil. Is it not a thousand times better to do this than to appeal to government to pass acts which simply cut off the heads of abuses while the roots remain untouched? Let us work patiently, then, and within thirty years the priests will be changed without giving religious feeling a shock, without outraging its sensibilities. That is not all. Every nation has as its teachers 
the teachers that it deserves. If there are serving in the temples, many who have no right to be there, it is because of the low level of spirituality in the masses of the people. Karma gives to every nation that which that nation has earned. The priesthood given to India is fitted to the degraded spiritual life among her people. It is the way of the West to see the outer evils only and to try to destroy them. It is the way of the East to study the law of karma and to sow seeds that shall bring forth fair harvest. The interests of our lives are not centered in one life, as the West thinks, but we are taught that we are not bounded by these bodies. We are living life after life, and so we can afford to work for the future, as men work who know that their life goes on growing and evolving. Let us then turn our hearts and lives towards ancient ideals. Let us begin by spiritualizing ourselves. Let us worship faithfully and with devotion. Let us meditate daily, steadily, and perseveringly for spiritual fervor. Let us purify our lives and learn charity, tenderness, love of all that is around us. Let us improve ourselves, and karma will and must send us priests who will be worthy to serve at the altar and in the family. Let us trust the good law and the gods behind every phenomenon. Their power is real, the power that guides all nations. Let us offer pure lives of devotion, and they will give us back, as reward, a pure priesthood and teachers who are learned and spiritual men. Those two methods of change I venture to recommend to you, the education of the priesthood and the raising of the standard of spirituality in the nation. Let each man take this to himself, and not put it off on his neighbor. Let us not say, India has sunk low, but rather let us say, I have sunk low, and I must rise. If every man says that, then India will rise. If each man will cultivate the vineyard of his own life, the whole area will be cultivated, and the blessings of the gods will be once more upon the people. So, with regard to the family guru and the family priests. Rather, work hard and wait than hastily break up and destroy. But there is one outer thing that you might fairly do. In every ceremony where choice is yours, when there are ceremonies to which you invite brahmanas, and you choose them from among the great mass around you, then, without transcending your own proper duty, you could always choose only the learned and the pure. You should, on such occasions, leave on one side the illiterate and the profligate. Where choice is yours, why should you not choose the useful, instead of those that are branded as useless? Thus you will bring about some changes that will come more rapidly, without touching the holy ideals, that we all feel the necessity of preserving. Still further, it seems to me, it may be possible to go. But here I speak with something of doubt because of the exceeding difficulty of finding any person who has a right to move in the matter, of finding any recognized authority. Is it quite impossible that we might win the more thoughtful, the more learned of the priesthood, to join with us and give us their helping hand in stopping some of the worst scandals that go on around us day by day? Might it not be possible that a body of good Mahants and Pandas should, as a first step, 
exclude from his office a mahant or panda who has been condemned by law for some shameful crime? I do not see any lack of readiness on their part to go to the courts where their own interests are concerned, so that they already have recourse to the ruling power with regard to temporalities. We all know how the money offered to the gods is squandered in courts, in litigating cases, and how the offerings of the faithful are spent on the law and the lawyers. We all know, also, that priests themselves sometimes mortgage away their rights to receive such offerings, and that the offerings of Hindus intended to support their religion go to persons outside Hinduism, to those who are not even of the Hindu faith. It does not seem impossible, therefore, that the same power might be invoked by the more worthy of the priests to redress flagrant scandals, to interfere with and prevent unworthy priests from continuing to receive emoluments belonging to their office. It does not seem impossible that the honorable men might make a tribunal whose voice should be recognized as authoritative by the civil government, so that, when it pronounced a man unworthy, its decision should be recognized as barring him from bringing any suit to claim any place in a temple, or any maintenance, or proprietary rights. It seems to me not impossible that such a thing might be done. Applied first to a man condemned by the law for a crime, it might be applied gradually, as the standard rises, to less flagrant cases. But this plan can only be worked out by those who are learned alike in religion and in law. I can only in this give hints and suggestions. It is for wise and learned Hindus to see if anything can be done practically in this direction, without injuring the ideal of a true priesthood, and without destroying anything that is worthy of preservation. If some such immediate changes can be brought about, and if the growing spirituality of the people and improved education raise the status of the priesthood, if these purifying forces go on, step by step, then it would seem that brighter days will dawn again for Hindu faith and Hindu practice. Apart from the ignorance and the immorality of the priesthood, there are other things that need to be changed in connection with some few of the temples, though happily found only in comparatively few, animal sacrifice and notch girls. I know well, perhaps better than many of those who defend it, the hidden truth out of which animal sacrifice has arisen. But the slaying of animals as now performed is utterly indefensible, and the shedding of their blood pollutes and defiles the temples where it takes place. Asuric are these animal sacrifices of the Kali Yuga, tormenting the aggregated elements forming the body, and me also, seated in the inner body and they should be entirely discontinued. So with the Notch Girls. Originally there existed, in connection with the temples, a band of pure maidens, vestal virgins, through whose unsullied lips, from time to time, a god or a great rishi would speak, warning or teaching the worshippers. Only a pure virgin could serve as such a vehicle, for the temporary embodiment of a great one whose physical body was far away. These virgins were guarded with the greatest care, and were looked on with the greatest reverence. Theirs it was to serve the priests ministering at the shrine, and to weave the mystic dance with sacred garlands, moving to the measure of the music that they chanted, amid the fragrant smoke of incense, as the stately procession moved 
from fane to fane. As the priests degenerated, they dragged down the temple maidens with them, until now their name carries with it only suggestions of shameful vice. Little wonder that all good influences have fled where womanhood is thus degraded, and the highest spiritual uses have been changed into lowest sin. Is it all a dream, impossible of realization, that Indian temples shall again be what once they were? That Indian sacred images again shall have their divine power? That Indian priests shall again be what they ought to be, models for those for whom they minister? That gurus shall be wise, pious, and learned, worthy to train their shishas along the path of wisdom, virtue, and piety? Is this only a utopian dream? My brothers, I cannot think it, for in this land there still remains what no other land in the world possesses. There is still a spiritual life hidden within the hearts of men. There are still places where it makes itself felt. There are still spots which are holy, and which are kept holy for the sake of the future, that yet shall be born. There is still, in the hearts of the Indian people, a spiritual fiber that elsewhere is not found. There is still response from them to a spiritual appeal that no other nation in the world is as yet able to give. Is all that to be wasted? All these to be lost at the very moment when Indian thought is penetrating the world? Is India herself to be excluded from that great life that through her is pouring out to the nations of the West? That need not be. That shall not be. If only India's children will do what they should do, by virtue of the past behind them, by virtue of the gods above them, by virtue of the great rishis who still live and who love their ancient fatherland, who even in their high estate turn eyes of tenderest love on India's children and welcome them with a greater joy than they welcome the children of other lands. Then shall India rise. I cannot believe that India has no future, that this greatest of all faiths has no revival possible, which shall place her on a pinnacle where all the world shall worship her as a mighty power for spirituality. Surely she shall, despite all, be the mother of spiritual races yet unborn. I dream of a time when temples again shall be centers of spiritual life, when the sacred mantras shall ring out again in all their purifying, harmonizing force, when the language of the divas shall regain its ancient power, when the hearts of men shall bow in worship before the great gods who rule over mankind, and before the divine teachers who are their nearest priests. Of that I dream, my brothers. And I know that even if this dream be but a dream, which may the gods forbid, even then it is good to work for spiritual regeneration. Whether this dream be true or not, no force can be wasted, no change that is for good can be lost. Spirituality growing here shall cause spirituality to grow all the world over. Even if the crown of spirituality may not be India's, nay, may go elsewhere, those who work for her today will be content that somewhere there will rise a spiritual teacher before whom all the world shall bow in homage. That spiritual teacher may wear an Indian body, may be in the likeness of the rishis of old. For that I pray the gods, 
For that I work, for that I give the life that now I hold. And I pray you, that you also will give your lives, you who have the privilege of Hindu birth, which in this life I have not, you who can go into the temples where I may not go, who may worship where I may not worship. I am pleading for that which should be dearer to you than it is to me. Will you be deaf to the pleadings of love, and let India perish, as she must perish if her religion dies? End of section 5. Recording by Olivia.